with your hosts, Ashley Bishop and Sir Daniel Ettinger. <laughs> oh, when did you get knighted? Well, <laughs> the only reason I did that is because we're going to go back in time here in a little okay. bit. Yeah, because, you know, it's history. We got to learn a little bit about how our profession started. I'm really excited. So stay tuned for that. I, I talk about um, Henry Berg a lot just in like some of the trainings and things that I do. So to have an expert join us here in a second is, is exciting for me. And uh, yeah. So anyway, how much do you know about Henry Berg Bishop? Um, well, I started reading a trader to his species. <laughs> um, That'll help. I did not get very far in it because of my intention was to read during my lunch breaks that I was going to make myself take. And then that failed miserably, as we all know. We yeah. don't get our lunch breaks, so I'm not as there. far as I'd like to be. But well, we'll talk about that and kind of his involvement and in, in in our profession, truthfully. So that's exciting. Don't forget yeah. to check out our website, keepithumane.com. Use discount code AC Report for ten percent off any order, uh, and check us out on our social media platforms. That is. What are those, Bishop? Keep it humane. And humane Maine. The yeah. Animal Control Report. All those things. Facebook, you know? Instagram, TikTok. Yeah. Those things, you know, that everybody has. I don't know if our guest has those, but we're gonna find out. We're gonna <laughs> ask our guest right now. Let's introduce Dr. Ernest Freeberg, who is a history professor with the University of Tennessee. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. And I don't have TikTok. <laughs> Are you sure? I can see you having TikTok. I've never seen it before. I've heard all about it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I didn't do, I didn't introduce you in my Southern Tennessee voice, which I'm disappointed in, but. It's probably still, for the betterment of our show. We still have time to do that. Now, um, for our listeners, I, I think just, just really quick, it would be cool for them to hear kind of your, your backstory, how you got started, you know being a professor, et cetera. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I was working as a journalist uh, in public radio uh, in the 1980s, and I was an English major, so I, had, I was interested in writing and sound and all the exciting things that are going on in the podcast world now were you know, sort of percolating in the 80s. But I realized that I, I was interviewing a lot of policy people without really knowing enough about the backstory of why, why we, we frame issues the way we do uh, so I went back to, to school, went to, got a PhD in history, and I've been focusing on the late 19th, early 20th century uh, through most of my writing, uh, because I think that's really a, a period where a lot of our own ideas about the world, including our relationship to animals, really starts to emerge, the sort of modern ideas about animals. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, how I, that's how I went from, from being a reporter to being a historian. And how did you get introduced to the idea of Henry Berg? Like what brought you to write the book, A Traitor to His Species, which is available on Amazon and probably other platforms. Um, yeah. But how did you get paired up with that story? Well, uh, you know, it's a little hard to recreate. I, I think uh, I was working on a, uh, my previous book was about the electrification of cities or sort of the impact of electric light on American life as it's left Edison's laboratory and moved through uh, the cities in the same time period, uh, that the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, and for one thing, I ran into a lot of situations where animals were badly abused by 
their exposure to electricity. They were being electrocuted and uh, running into light poles and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, anybody who spent any time thinking about the city in this time period, as I have, just, you know, realizes that the city was full of animals and that animal control and how to, how to live side by side with so many animals was very much a, uh, you know, an important issue of the day. Uh, so I think it emerged out of out of spending a lot of time thinking about what that city looked like. We think about electrification as this ultra modern thing, and and to have it be, you know, have them struggle because mules kept running into light poles and knocking them over, uh, you know, raised the questions about the transitions that we were going through, not just with technology, but also the way that affected our relationship to animals. And then Henry Berg, just such a once I ran into his story, uh, he was, you know, just such a fascinating character to try to get at the bigger questions about about uh, how our ideas about animals have changed in this period. Absolutely. I came across a study, and there's not much info. I'm curious if you know the 1811 law concerning dogs in New York City, um, where, I mean, they were just rounding up dogs and, and putting mm. them down, um, you know, and that's about what 50 years prior to right. the, the whole Henry Berg movement. So it just kind sure. of shows that, uh, you know, the, the mentality, I guess you could say of, of how it's changed in our communities uh, yeah. from that, that era to where we are now. Right. Absolutely. You know, mentioning that Dan about the differences then and now I'm actually a little surprised that we are so behind the times as we are um, having gotten into the book a little bit because um, between Henry and the, what is it? The women's, um, what was that? The woman, the Caroline Earl White. You're talking about Mm -hmm. her? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the group that she started and all of the education like it sounds like there was a huge movement for educating people about the proper treatment of animals. Um, maybe not so much from Henry. He wasn't as big on the education part of it. Um, right. But there was so much emphasis on that between the news article, or not the news articles, but the, uh, was it quarterly or monthly letters that would go out? Yeah, the newspaper uh, yeah. that, that uh, was being produced out of Boston. To the schools, to the humane societies, to legislators. Like, what happened to society that we went from that and then we almost took a turn back in time and regressed from that? Hmm. I wonder, so you think that's true? I, I, it strikes me that, that the, you know, the Disney films and nature hmm. documentaries and the you know, children's, the messages children get, that's got that kind of humane uh, education impulse, which was founded there. I mean, it was intense, certainly to get, get to get it started. And it was greeted as, as an unusual thing at the time. Uh, but now I think that's just part of our culture, isn't it? I mean, it may not be as effective as we would like, but. Well, and I guess when I say, you know, we went back in time, there's a lot of people that don't look at animals as anything more than farm animals still. They're yeah. still very much creatures out there that, well, you know what, it's not a human. Um, 
and we're still trying to change that stigma of a dog catcher, which I mean, Henry <laughs> was by no means a dog catcher. Right. Well, I, I think the, right. I mean, you raise an interesting point about the about rural versus urban. I mean, I think that's an important part of the story of Henry Berg is that, uh, in some ways, the city was much crueler than than urban than a rural environment for animals. Uh, but in other ways, the very nature of the city meant that people were being exposed to animal cruelty in a way that they might not have been on the farm and they thought about it differently, maybe because they themselves were not uh, managing livestock or, or you know, that they were observers rather than participants in engaging with animals. And I think that, you know, that humane movement really is an urban movement. It didn't take, didn't take off in the, in rural environments. Uh, you know, farmers did not see the need. Uh, so I think what you're talking about, you know, it's, it, it gets to those issues about uh, ag-gag laws and, mm. and the fact that we are, you know, a lot of the issues that, that concerned urban people watching the way uh, butchery was done, watching the treatment of livestock in, in urban environments where they were in livestock pens getting ready to be, to be slaughtered. A lot of that's been resolved by just getting it out of sight out in, in rural areas. It's an interesting, interesting uh, angle and in, in thought process. I know there's been some, I would say, just movements, if you will, to to organize or to make more humane practices in our, you know, in our food producing animals. Sure. Uh, certain states even have, have come down on that. With, with regards to Henry Berg and his story, I'd love to kind of start a little bit before he transitioned. So... If I'm not mistaken, he was in his 50s uh, when he started the ASPCA. Is that correct? That's right, and that's yeah. That's part of what fascinated people with Berg was that he was a he was a wealthy. He had inherited a lot of money from his father, who was a successful uh, shipbuilder in New York. And Berg was not interested as a young man in pursuing uh, that that field uh, at all. So he he went to school for a little bit, a couple of years of college, and then he just basically. Uh, dropped out and pursued a life as a, as a apparently very bad playwright and poet, uh, and loved the theater and married uh, another wealthy socialite, and they mostly spent their, uh, their middle decades of adulthood uh, in Europe, sort of traveling around the capitals of Europe. Uh, so very cosmopolitan, uh, but really had not accomplished much. And it was really a, it was a he was fifty three when he was during the Civil War. Uh, appointed to uh, the, the State Department, uh, the embassy in, in Russia. So he was in St. Petersburg. And the story that he told many times was that he uh, was out one day and the Teamsters in, in the streets of St. Petersburg were apparently quite brutal, uh, maybe even more brutal than the, the ones in New York. And he saw a Teamster beating his horse and, and Berg snapped and said, you know, drop your whip. And because he was wearing the epaulets of, uh, you know, and the gold uh, seams of a, of an ambassador, the, this person re was recognized Berg as an authority figure and he dropped the whip. And Berg says that was the, up to that point, the most successful thing he'd ever done. Mm -hmm. uh, and it changed his, his life. He decided, okay, this is, he's going to devote his life to pursuing this cause that he'd been sort of frittering his life away up to this point. 
So he went back. He stopped uh, on. He didn't like Russia and didn't stay there long. Uh, he stopped in in England and talked to the founders of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which had started uh, in the 1820s and 30s. Uh, learned a bit about their strategies and their rhetoric and, and you know how they were organizing themselves. And he brought some of those ideas back to New York uh, and in 1866 gathered actually very distinguished, wealthy people, well politically connected uh, people in in New York to issue what he called an animal bill of rights, uh, that he was going to commit himself to chartering the first uh, state society for the prevention of cruelty to animals uh, and, and to get the state legislature to pass the first animal cruelty law with some real teeth to it. That was really the start of what became uh, a national movement as this spread across mostly the North and the Midwest uh, initially. Uh, and, and while Berg is the center of this, uh, there's, there really were hundreds of thousands of people who joined the, the various uh, local societies in order to promote this, this cause. I have so many questions. And uh, I just want to start with a quick one. How long, like, how long are they at sea to get to these places back then? So when he's going to Russia or Europe, like how, how long is that travel? Yeah. Well, it's a couple of weeks. Okay. Each way. Yep. Okay. Not as, not as bad as it had been a deck, you know, it's a century before. It had... Okay. Okay. With, did he have, I, I, I guess like with him, did he have any legal training or schooling? <laughs> like, did he understand how to create laws or was it like, did he? No, but he had a, he had a, he had unbounded confidence in, in himself okay. and, and he was a well-connected, you know, privileged person. So I think he sure. felt like he was in a position to, to, uh, you know, it, he, he basically felt like law is mostly drama and he knew all about drama okay. as a playwright. And, and if he could just, you know, in many ways, I think he was, he wanted to win the cases, but he also wanted to move, public opinion through the, through the cases. That was even more important, I think, you know, to make sure reporters were coming along and watching the thing and making sure that his, you know, he never missed an opportunity to, to raise public awareness uh, about the issue. So it wasn't just a matter of prosecuting people, but th that drew attention uh, to the cause. Got it. Which is one of the reasons why one of his first attacks was against the, the turtle dealers. Right, right, which was everybody said, "Why we thought you were going to stop people beating their horses? Why are you worried about turtles? You know, turtles." Many argued can't even feel anything, and so when Berg found uh, a ship, as often happened, the turtles were shipped up from Key West. They were flipped upside down. These are big, big sea turtles uh, heading for uh, the kitchens of New York. Uh, flipped upside down, a rope put through their flippers to, to stop them from flailing around in the bottom of the, of the hold of a ship deprived of food and water. Uh, so Berger, you know, one of his earliest arrests was, was of a ship captain for cruelty to turtles and people were outraged. You know, they said, well, turtles don't feel anything, you know, mm -hmm. and, and very little, or, or they're not even an animal. Some would suggest they're, you know, so there was Fish. this absurd debate yeah. in the courts over, whether or not a turtle was, you know, and Berg says, look, it's animal, vegetable, mineral, right? It's not a mineral. It's not a vegetable. Of course, it's an animal. And the law says you can't be cruel to animals, not to some animals, all animals. You know, in that, in that way, Berg 
I think lots of people were willing to go along with the idea that you should not be cruel to horses. They had seen plenty of evidence of cruelty to horses. What that actually meant was a little hard to define in some cases, but people generally recognized the importance of horses and the, and the sensitivity of horses and the intelligence, maybe dogs uh, in, in many cases. But when you went further down the, the, the chain, uh, people were, were not re ready to follow Berg, and he, he took them there. You know, he was advocating for the rights of pigeons and, and uh, the rats who were being uh, used as, as sport in, in ratting contests and, uh, you know, in any number of anywhere, of circus animals, all sorts of places where people were like, what's Berg going to do next? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he was well aware of how to, you know, he didn't have a legal background, but he had a, he had a background in, in shaping public opinion. And that's really what he was, he was trying to do with the law. Well, he was very flamboyant about how he <clears throat> went about enforcing these laws. Yes. It's, I mean, he was... So partly, he was just a flamboyant person. I mean, the, the idea of, a, of a, a guy who is, he's this big, tall guy with, with you know, the sort of classic uh, droopy mustache of that era, you know, wearing a top hat and a, and a cane and spats, you know, and that's the sort of person he would expect to see at the at the opera, but instead he's out in the middle of the streets arresting teamsters for, for driving their horses too hard. And, uh, you know, there were times when he would, the, the teamsters would fight back and say, Hey, it's my property. I can do what I want with. And he'd, he'd give him a lecture about the nature of the law and yeah. if they didn't go along with it. He'd grab him by the lapels and throw him in the gutter, you know? And, uh, wow. so he was, uh, he was good copy for, for the journalists for sure. Well, and he had kind of a theory behind it that if if somebody was willing to do that to an animal, what is that person willing to do to their wife? Yes. And that mm. kind of gives us the first inkling of connecting the link between animal abuse and domestic violence. Right. Uh, so that was right. definitely something that he already had on his mind in fact, in right, he did, in and and uh, you know, it's uh, what a lot of people know about Henry Berg is his is his connection to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to, to Children. Children, yeah. I'm gonna he, get in, I want to get into that here in a second with yeah. Mary Ellen Wilson if yeah. we can. Right, yeah. So right, he and he also, you know, he made an argument that that people against slavery also uh, mm -hmm. made, and he kind of, you know, so a lot of these moral arguments were sort of ready to hand in, in 1866 because of. Uh, the battle over slavery that had just occurred, which was in many ways a fight against cruelty. Uh, and he basically said, people, it's it, this, the, you know, the, the act of cruelty clearly hurts the person who's the, you know, or the, the being that's being injured, but it also is an injury to the, to the cruel person. It degrades their soul. Uh, and if people live in an environment where others are being cruel and it's tolerated, then that degrades everybody, right? That essentially it's, you know, it, it lowers the moral standard of the whole society. So it's not simply a matter of your property or uh, protecting the right of the animal or the enslaved person. Uh, but, but rather it's, it's a fight against cruelty that raises the, the moral standard for the, for the, you know, across the board. You've probably heard this quote, and I recently 
found an article saying that it wasn't quoted by Gandhi is the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. Mm. Uh, it's attributed to Gandhi, but the article that I read said it's not his, his words. So I've heard know. that, I've heard that about, uh, that Martin Luther King had said that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I wonder why it would get attributed to Gandhi, but it's, um, a very famous quote. You see it in yeah. animal shelters. You see it on people's signature lines, on their emails. Uh, but it's true. Regardless of who said it, it's true. And I think um, having that moral compass and understanding that, hey, what I'm seeing is wrong. And if you look at just the history of Berg, like there was, um, I think there was history of him going and watching bullfights. And <clears throat> I mean, obviously he was upset with the with the act itself, but I think what even bothered him more was the reaction from the fans and the crowd and, and how excited people would get at the barbaric aspect of the, the fights between the two. Right. Bull, you know, so, yes. Yeah. It, it's a, I mean, I, I think truthfully we can have you on for days because there's so many <laughs> questions I have. Uh, I think there, there's just a, such a unique backstory and, and understanding to all of it with how did he, I guess my question is, so he, he passes these laws and then how does he become the enforcer? Like, how is he just like, all right, well, I passed these laws. Now I'm going to go out here and give myself a badge and make myself a humane agent. Basically. How does that right. part work? Yeah. I mean, that was such, that's such an important, you know, as I said, he did stop and talk to the Royal SPCA who were sure. a bunch of mostly very elite, uh, well-meaning people who who passed laws that were really meant to be sort of you know exhortatory rather than having any real teeth to them they were they were they didn't enforce them what berg did which was really central to his to his success uh, and his notoriety was that he built into the law the right for to to create agents of the spca himself included but he would also appoint others across the city uh, who were em empowered by this law to make essentially what we would think of as citizens arrests or, you know, in this particular area. And they might do it on their own, or in other cases, they might be in a position to call on the police. Sometimes the police were very sympathetic to this and willing to help. And in other cases, they were, didn't understand this, you know, Berg's argument was cruelty to animals is an, is a new thing. The average uh, policeman on the beat is not used to thinking about enforcing this, wouldn't know how to do it. That's uh, the same you know, in 2023. You know, <laughs> you know, right. And, and where is the line between uh, proper discipline, acceptable discipline of an animal uh, in the case of, you know, whipping a horse or whatever it might be mm -hmm. and, and being cruel to the horse. What's, you know, what is, if cruelty is, is unnecessary, bad treatment rather than necessary. Where's that line? Hmm. And a lot of that had to be sorted out in court and over years. And I, I, I'm sure it's still being sorted out. Uh, so Berg basically argued, we need people in the field who are, you know, who are on top of this, who are sort of helping advance the cutting edge of what, you know, where that line is, uh, rather than leaving it to the, to the, to the police to, to do this with all the other things they have to be thinking about. Uh, yeah. So that was that was hugely important, uh, and the fines that that these agents managed to win in court would come back to the society in order to help 
front pay for their salary and and what you know their their sort of propaganda efforts to spread the spread the message. It was a dangerous job, you know, as as I point out in the book that they were when they when these agents went into the the field and started to tell people what to do, you know, to stop being cruel to their animals. They they sometimes faced lots of abuse, and even a, a couple were badly injured, and one was murdered. Uh, wow! By, by people who were resisting. That's not surprising to me. Mm. People get passionate about their animals. Yeah. No matter how they what their perception of their animals is, whether it's property or, um, you know, a creature for them to love and consider family, they're passionate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that funny line between animals as property and animals as, as beings with rights that, that was a brand new idea really for most people to try to get their heads around. And it seems like it's still an argue, a discussion. I wouldn't say argument, but today um, sure. we have we have that that continues to go on. I want to go back to excuse me something that you said a little bit earlier about like the definition of animal, and we see that we see that even in local ordinance uh, or even state code where animal control officers or humane agents may only be able to enforce laws for let's say domestic animals. So they may not have the ability to like enforce or investigate a case that goes, you know, whether it's livestock or wildlife because the way it's defined in their local ordinance. Mm. Amphibian. Or, or such. Like uh, when I teach at the, the military, when you look at the definitions of animal, it's domestic pet and it's basically dog, cat, uh, like it does not reptiles not included and you know wildlife's not included now there might be a workaround with your state state code or things like that but it's just interesting how i mean even going back to you know the story about the turtles it's the same concept of like an animal is an animal and so if you're cruel to an animal there should be some sort of way to you know investigate and and potentially punish if necessary so right it's just, it's interesting that that's still a thing. Well, it seems, you know, you know a lot more about this than I do. It's, it struck me that in these early years, what Berg is aiming for is, is enormously comprehensive, right? It's, it's every animal he's trying to make the case mm -hmm. uh, and, and trying to think through what is, you know, whereas most people were focused on, on, on livestock and on, and you know, just beginning to think about pet culture back in that in that period. Um, and now, of course, when I you know when I came to look at all of the ways that people are dealing with animal welfare and animal rights today, it's much more diverse, a wider ecosystem of of different organizations. You know, some specifically working on poultry abuse, and mm. others would look at Henry Berg and say, well, he you know he was on the right track, but he wasn't anywhere near. Uh, standing up for what we think of now as animal rights, he was an looking for animal welfare, but not rights. Uh, you know, so the he sort of started a lot of conversations that are that are still going on now, but but they're in, in they are much more diverse. And, and of course, one of them, as you mentioned, it, it was is the issue of wildlife. And 
as I mentioned in the book, people started to write to Berg and say, there's this horrendous massacre of the buffalo going on uh, out here on the plains of Kansas. Uh, you seem to be the only person who's got any leverage. Can't you do something? You know, And Berg tried, uh, but without success. Right? Mm-hmm. He basically because of the way the laws work, there were very few uh, national laws. Uh, he was he could do what he could with the New York legislature, but that wasn't going to help the, 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 the buffalo herds in Kansas. Uh, and again, it's one of those issues where, uh, you know, while it's a common story for us today, people did not actually directly experience uh, that horrendous slaughter. And so right. it, was, it was largely out of sight, out of mind, you know. Absolutely. Tomahawk Live Trap has been manufacturing humane animal capture and handling equipment since 1925. They work directly with animal control officers around the world to develop and improve their products so that they're as safe and efficient as possible. Save 10% on your next order by using discount code DCACREPORT. Visit them online at www.livetrap.com or call them at 1-800-272-8727. I think we... Oh, go ahead, Bishop. I was just going to say that I decided to actually look up my definition of animal. And I had hope for a moment and then it was all taken away by (laughs) the ending. Uh, My definition is animal means any living vertebrate, domestic or wild, except a human being, which is all great, which may be affected by rabies. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm still not doing anything for turtles. (laughs) Right. It's interesting how it's, it's just broken down differently everywhere you go. I mean, yeah. and I think there's still that issue today in some aspects that, you know, animals historically are food producing or uh, they have a job. And I mean, granted, I think we're in a time now where we're really starting to see the pendulum shift from a lot of the, I would say, I want to try to frame this the right way, but a lot of people consider, you know, pets now as their children. And I I think you're seeing a shift in people having children in that aspect to having animals uh, as kind of that. I don't want to say replacing that, but being that um, in their family. And so uh, it's just an interesting thing. And so I'm curious to see what the next 50 years look like for animal laws in this country. And I think one thing people fail to remember with just history in general, and maybe this is something doc that you can touch on is I think a lot of people just get comfortable and think like, okay, well, this is the way it is and there's no need to push change, but like there's a Henry Berg out there right now, right? Somebody can come in and create something that, you know, creates a, a, a brand new way of, whether it's enforcing or thinking about what we do with animals in our, in our country. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like that conversation is, is all over the, maybe I'm, maybe it's because of, you know, this work that we're, it, it seems like it's, it's everywhere now. People are still are continuing to have to grapple with uh, where that line is. That beginning of pet culture, I think, was really an interesting thing to find in the early, you know, the beginnings of the dog shows and the idea that animals, you know, that dogs, for example, could be pedigreed and that pet shops and the development of sort of the 
the sensitivity to, to animals and the strong 19th century idea that animals should be, especially uh, dogs and cats, should be part of a family because they cultivate uh, humane feelings uh, in children. Mm. Something we take pretty much for granted now uh, and, and, and have carried to much further uh, lengths than, than they did in the late 19th century. Yeah. Do you know, when you were looking, just doing your history, you know, research on this, on this topic, do you know, like with the dog catcher specifically, and we see it more and more now where animal control is just one thing. Uh, now in certain states, you may have a dog warden, an animal control officer, and a humane agent. So you have like two separate mm type of jobs. Um, but for the most part, most of the animal control officers now in the country do both. Uh, there's just a few states like Ohio, Pennsylvania that I can think of off the top of my head, New York too, um, that have that split. Do you know, um, was there any crossing of that profession back then where, you know, there was the, you know, the stray dog enforcement and the animal cruelty investigator? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I think, you know, part of the struggle that that they were going through in the uh, uh, Berg and and Carol and Earl White in Philadelphia mm -hmm. and, and George Angel in Boston was yep. to get dog catching out of out of the hands of the local city government and and put it in the hands of people who were trained and part of the this this animal welfare movement rather than political appointees, you know, that's sort of where the, the, you know, the negative connotations around dog catcher come out of this idea that these are, these are, you know, not people who are doing this because they care about animals, but rather this is, you know, this is, you know, one of the worst jobs you can have um, mm -hmm. and they're willing to take it or they're, you know, they're on the political take. It's sort of, that's, that sort of thing. They're, they're, uh, you know, patronage jobs, uh, and so they were interested, all three of these early founders of the movements were interested in creating a system of, of animal control that was guided by what was, whatever was considered to be the best practices, you know, developing the use of nets instead of nooses. And uh, of course, Carolyn Earl White and, and, and company developing the first uh, sort of what we would think of as humane animal shelters. Mm -hmm. uh, and thinking, you know, this very challenging thing about thinking about euthanasia and and what was the what was the best way to do this, you know, the sort of getting into the business of of destroying animals uh, as part of the movement, uh, and and a lot of debate about what was the best way to do this, when to do this. Uh, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it seems like there is a there is a move uh, in changing the, the nature of uh, animal control officers. Uh, and having them be backed up by these developing institutions, especially in Philadelphia, of, of running a shelter as a sort of separate project, as opposed to the, those who are out in the field as the agents. Uh, and, you know, of course, they're working against what was, in many cities, a bounty system, mm -hmm. uh, which was particularly horrendous, where they would offer a 50-cent bounty, a dollar bounty for for a dog dead or alive uh, in different formulas and just would set off this horrendous 
chase, you know, in, in cities uh, with people who needed the money chasing desperate dogs uh, in the alleys and, you know, trying to control that sort of uh, cruelty and, and chaos in the city streets was part of what, what the uh, Humane Society was trying to make the case for. And that, that alone there makes me realize that the dog catcher may not have even come from an organized dog catcher, right? It might have just yes. been, you know, these... A freelancer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Trying to make money by rounding up these stray dogs. And I mean, going back to that 1811 law concerning dogs, I think, you know, I mean, there was a, a point where thousands of dogs were, were turned in. Uh, yeah. to, to New York. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so I mean, like you say, I can see. Often by by children, right? Yeah. There were a lot of homeless kids on the streets and this was something they could do to make a little money. Uh, and when they tried to pass laws to stop children from being able to do this, they would, uh, these agents would would come along who would sort of be brokers, you know, who would, adults who would buy dogs from kids and then mm-hmm. turn them into the pound for the money and give the kids a portion of this. So it was really pervasive and it took a long time to, to change that culture. Speaking of children, I want to transition into Mary Ellen Wilson. I think uh, that story isn't told enough. What, so when you talk about uh, Etta Wheeler and her connections, like how, how did she and Henry Berg meet? Like how did that take off and, and create laws to protect children? Yeah. Well, as Berg became more well known, and uh, it was obvious that he had, you know, the, the tools in order to to stop cruelty to animals, and so uh, he was approached by her in, to to report that you know they knew about Mary Ellen Wilson, about this young girl being who was weeping and obviously being being uh, tortured and mistreated. Uh, 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 this. Uh, a social worker had heard this and came to Berg and said, why can't you stop this? And, and there was, you know, there were issues about whether or not this human beings are animals. And Berg said, well, a, a child is an animal too. So I think I, I must be authorized to do this. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so they went in and, and, uh, you know, it became a very highly uh, high profile case, which they won. And, uh, but for Berg, and I think for the other leaders that I've talked about, George Angel and Carol and Earl White, they were worried that it was a bad, they thought it was a bad idea to combine the two mm. causes, you know, that a society of prevention of cruelty to all living things, human and animal, was in the end going to be focused on humans uh, because of an obvious moral bias for the concerns of children uh, over animals, and that both were important. Uh, but that the best way to approach this was to have two separate organizations. You know, others said, "Look, we're you know we're our, our war on cruelty to animals is rolling along. We have a staff, we have laws. Let's just expand this and and uh, you know because it's part of the same humanitarian impulse." Uh, but in the end, uh, in most places, Berg and and uh, his allies were successful in saying there should be a separate organization. And so Berg was a founding member of, of New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And so uh, Etta, Etta got resistance when she first tried to bring this to the police, correct? And that's what led her to Henry Berg? 
Yeah. Yeah. And similar, I think, you know, it's a sense of, well, this is, you know, even, even more so, I mean, if people are not sure what the boundaries are between, you know, property rights or control over one's animal, it's even more complicated and sensitive when you're dealing with a, a with a, a parent and a, and a child. Sure. Uh, so, you know, a, a, a more, in, in some ways very similar, but in other ways, uh, you know, a different set of moral equations. And, and so the law had to deal with it differently. With, we talked, um, I know you you kind of brought him up in passing. We talked a little bit about Carolyn Earl White and George Thorndike Angel. Did they all know each other? Yeah, yeah, they they came to know each other. I think okay. you know Berg was was the visible one initially, and both Angel and and uh, White ended up contacting Berg uh, for advice and support. And okay. uh, you know, one of the strengths of the movement, I think, is that each one of them was very strong in their own way. They each had their own. You know, Berg was was a, a great propagandist and a strong advocate for for harsh laws or strong laws in order to go after uh, the cruel people. And he was the one who was willing to push the fight into all sorts of places that that uh, others were not willing to, you know, didn't think to to take it. Carol Earl White was, you know, much stronger with with the the, the women of Philadelphia in, as an institution builder. Uh, both the anti-vivisection society and the creation of the first uh, animal shelters and uh, the development of uh, the gas chamber. It's, it seems kind of interesting that the nice Quaker ladies of Philadelphia were really in many ways pioneers in the gas chamber, uh, huh. which has shaped so much of the 20th century. Uh, but they but they did, and they and White advocated for that uh, really globally. Uh, and then, and then George Angel, as we've said, is really, really the pioneer in humane education. It's, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And, and I think as, just knowing our history in this profession and just understanding that, like, because uh, when you see these big, you know, when you see the ASPCA, you think of Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> you don't think of Henry Berg, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's just important to understand. And, and I'm sure if you look at their mission statement, um, a lot of what Henry Berg did is, is part of that mission, I would imagine. It's not something I've really looked into. One thing I can say that is a, a reflection of what Henry Berg did, a lot of our state statutes or even our local ordinance still have the language that probably he came up with hmm. in the 1800s was... Um, overdrive, overwork, overwork while overdriving. I mean, that, that to me speaks volumes to the, the horses, the equine yeah. that they were dealing with back then. It's funny to me, the difference in how each of them approached everything though. Um, just because Henry was very much, uh, for lack of a better pun, take the horse by the reins. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, he wanted everybody prosecuted. He wanted everybody to, he, he wanted to deal with it after the fact, or at least that's the impression that I got. Um, whereas the other two wanted to start with educating and, and growing that compassion for animals and other creatures and 
humane treatment of all. Did they, do you think that they butted heads with that at all? You know, I, 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 I saw no evidence of that. I think, uh, you know, you, there was, the, the, there was the one situation where Berg, you know, who, who liked to be flamboyant and, and grab attention, you know, and he proposed that it would be a good idea for wife beaters and, and the worst animal cruelists to be publicly flogged, you know, and he even said, you know, it would be really, the floggers are human beings and they're likely to either get tired or feel mercy. And so they're not going to flog hard enough. What we need is somebody to develop a steam powered whipping machine for these people, (laughs) you know, and you know, it's with Berg. It's hard to tell when he was ever. He he, he wasn't a funny man. Uh, so, <laughs> it's you know, people started to say, well, maybe you've sort of gone off off the deep end. And he certainly played into uh, the criticism of him that he dealt with his whole life. That he he didn't care about human beings. You know, it wasn't that he cared about animals. It's that he hated human humanity. Uh, so I think that you know, I'm sure that that uh, White and Angel and others distanced themselves from some of Berg's more extreme statements like that. But on the other hand, I think that they really recognize the strength of their different strategies and the importance of uh, collaborating in order to build a movement that, you know, and all of them were called on to, to spread the message. Uh, you know, other states would identify, particularly Berg, uh, but Angel as well. Uh, and, and they would, they would, um, you know, calling them to come and speak to the legislature. And so Berg's draft laws were basically copied and, and used across the country in just about every state by the, by the time he died in the 1880s. Just about every state had some version. Whether or not they were able to enforce it uh, was always a more complicated thing, but the, the, at least the law was on the books in most places by then. Hmm. Almost makes you not want to change some laws just so that you know you keep that piece of history Mm. (laughs) although noting that some of them don't quite apply anymore the way that they're written sure (laughs) some would say that about the constitution so um (laughs) we'll we'll just keep it moving that's another (laughs) podcast (laughs) podcast absolutely this is fascinating i have you done any other research on any animal like law any other things kind of similar to the Henry Berg movement? Uh, I, di- I did work. I did a book about the origin of, of uh, uh, the, the uh, education for the blind and the deaf. Uh, it's my first project, which really was a little bit prior generation to this one, but, but similar kind of people coming out of the same reform context. Uh, you know, that, that sort of New England reformer movement uh that was a sort of 1830s and 40s movement that really got sort of absorbed into the fight against slavery so i think there's a lineage here right there's a wide range of reforms women's rights in the 1830s and 40s uh rights for disability the beginnings of the of some of the laws about animal cruelty that start up start in the 1830s and 40s. Uh, a lot of that gets absorbed into the fight against slavery. Uh, and then when that is, it, it's certainly not resolved, but but when there's the crisis is passed uh, in, in the 1860s after the Civil War, I think that reform impulse broadens out again. 
and I think it benefits. I mean, Berg is a great example of this, and 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 Carolyn Earl White. They, a lot of the language about anti-slavery is is easily adapted to these these concerns about about children and about animals as well. Uh, you know that that rights don't just belong to property owning adult male citizens, but in a sense, rights the right to be uh, free from cruelty is, is, is something to which belongs to all beings. And this, yeah. you know, this, that kind of thinking, it would not be conceivable in the 1860s if it hadn't been for decades uh, of de- defining that argument, honing that argument uh, in, in, the, in the decades before, particularly with the anti-slavery movement. And for people to, to, to see your work, is it best to go to Amazon uh, or is there another, another place that you would recommend? Uh, where yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the easiest, of course. Okay. Uh, people should go to their local bookstore and, and be shocked that it's not on the shelves. <laughs> <laughs> local bookstores, those, those still exist some, in yeah, some places. Yeah, we have a few around here. Yeah, that's it's true. That is true. What are you working on? Any other projects at the time? Uh, well, right now I'm working on. Uh, the, the, I live in New England during the. Uh, even though I, I teach in Tennessee, but I spend my summers and as much as I can in in Maine. And I've been really interested in. Uh, it's a it's a different topic. I'm working on a, on the history of the, the our relationship to garbage, to trash, the New England town dump, I'm trying to use my our local town dump you know in new england you you bring your own trash to the to the dump Mm -hmm. and you separate out your recycling and people the politicians are there and people swap stuff and it's kind of a community center and i've sort of been interested in where did this institution come from how have people been dealing with uh trash when did the dump start which in fact uh, it was started in the, in the 1920s. People up till that point were just throwing stuff in their backyards or burning into it. the river. Yeah. And uh, so how did that develop? And, and then people, of course, were, the dumps got full. And so they would just set them on fire. When I grew up in outside of Boston, we had a dump. You just threw everything in there and, and the seagulls were all over the place. And then once a week, they would light it on fire and this huge plume of toxic smoke would rise over the town, you know, and, uh, so that's been replaced now, of course, by transfer centers. And so I've just been working on kind of understanding how our relationship to stuff is reflected in, in uh, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a piece of environmental history that uh, we don't pay as much attention to, I think, as, as, as we might. I'm such a Back to the Future fan, the movie, when Back to what, the Future. What, you know a movie? Yeah, stop. Uh, when at the end of Back to the Future One, or when you watch Back to the Future Two, when Doc shows up with the DeLorean and has the food processor <laughs> for 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 fuel, yeah, it really like it, it's surprising we don't do this enough. And I know like the Denver Zoo uses um, some animal waste, not all the animal waste, but some animal waste they use mm. to burn to make power. I'm surprised we don't do this yeah. enough. And, and I yeah. don't know, you know, the science behind it, but you'd think if we could just reuse our waste, we'd be a self, you know, efficient, energetic, like there, there would be energy, yeah. electricity for everybody. Right. feels like we're trying to move in that direction 
That's good. But yeah, I was just reading a story the other day about scientists figuring out how to pull power out of just humidity. And uh, so I don't know. We, yeah. we got, you know, but we have to stop packaging so much stuff. Oh my. I, yeah. You know, as I'm working on this project, every time I go to the grocery store, I'm, I have an existential crisis about, oh man, do I really want to take this thing home and then immediately take it out of its box and send that box to sit somewhere for three centuries and, you know, yeah. leaching into the water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's hard on to avoid a, it. On a similar topic, but also slightly different. Um, something that you said at the very beginning of your book about, you know, how we look at these pictures from, you know, way back in the day and the animals that are out on the street. But one thing we don't realize, and I absolutely had never thought about this until reading your book, the smell Mm. that would be actually associated with any of those photos because of how they did or rather did not right clean up anything uh, yes horse manure yeah. livestock manure more broadly that was an unbelievable problem you know and and therefore a water pollution problem and a you know, sanitation problem yeah it's not nearly as romantic as a as I, I was struck I, I was doing some research about the arrival of automobiles in the urban environment and I was struck by how much people were worried that when, as horses left, the streets were going to be so quiet, people were going to walk right into the road and get run over by cars because they could, mm. couldn't hear them compared to the, how, how loud mm. a team of horses would be coming along, yeah, on, down, especially yeah. on the cobblestone streets, you know. And, of course, nobody now thinks of cars on the road as being quiet. And uh, but, So that's another car. piece of this, you know, the sort of <laughs> sensory experience of what it was like to live so close to these these enormous, beautiful uh, animals and and all of the uh, t- space that it would take, uh, the the rats and sparrows and everything that came along with the enormous amount of grain and 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 hay that was in in downtown environments, you know, really fascinating. I, you know, that's part of what I think tracing this forward. We go from a situation where in the 1830s, 1880s and 90s that were really there are more horses than ever uh, in uh, American cities uh, to a point where by the 1920s and 30s, animals are very much, you know, under control. They have to be, you know, pets have to be licensed and uh, the horses are largely pushed to the margins. The livestock is being slaughtered outside the city and sometimes a thousand miles away, uh, you know, it's a, and so we start to just, the city is, is something which is notable for, I mean, clearly, you know, it doesn't eliminate animals, but our relationship to animals is so different in a, in a modern urban environment than it was uh, in, the, in the late 19th century. Interesting. It's fascinating stuff. And I, I think, as we like, you know, as we do this show, um, part of our, our goal here is to really bring just topics and information that people may not have, have heard of or have access to. So uh, we're really appreciative of you taking the time to do that. And I hope oh, thanks, people... thanks for your interest. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to speak to people who are, who are carrying this, 
this mission forward. Absolutely. And I hope people will check out A Traitor to His Species, uh, see your book and give it a read and learn a little bit more about, you know, the, the history of animal laws in this country in America. We have listeners in other countries, so I should clarify that. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, just excited to, to kind of make that connection and have you on. And if there's ever anything, you know, you want to come back on and chat about, you're more than welcome. Great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And again, check out a traitor to his species and, and other, other stories. Oh, I should ask you this before we, we let you go. Um, did you check? I mean, I know your, your last name doesn't have the H at the end, <laughs> but is there any connection the the Freeburg and Henry Berg? No, no, nope, nope. no. Freeburg is a, it's a Swedish, it's Freiburg, I think. And they okay switched it at Ellis Island. Yeah. They do that a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or they did that a lot. I guess they don't do right. that much anymore. Yeah. I did have the same thought too, Dan. Well, I mean, I figure you check it out, you know. Yeah, it's, uh... yeah. yeah my grandfather was Johan Freiburg, and uh, they said they changed it to Freiburg, and then he went to his first job uh, in Brooklyn as a blacksmith, and they said, well, we already have a Johan, so your name's Frank. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Frank. He was fine with that, you know, whatever. If America was going to let him in, you call him anything you want. <laughs> Frank you go. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Well, very good. Uh, thanks again for taking the yeah. time and for our listeners, you know, check out the, check out the book, check out Dr. Freeberg or Freiberg, however you'd like to say it. Freeberg. And check out our website again, keepithumane.com. Uh, if you, if you want to order anything, use discount code AC report, get 10% off your order. And as we always say here on the podcast, thanks for listening and keep it humane. Humane. Man. Man. We're getting good at this. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>